What's up, everyone? I'm Katherine Rudder, and you're listening to Life in the Fast Chain. Or you are watching. On this episode, we have Kieran McGonigal from ISDA and Jason Rosovsky from R3 talking about what ISDA is doing in the space and uh, governance and standardization. Um, a lot of things I personally don't think about on the day to day, but it is very interesting to learn about from Kieran and Jason because they are so close to it. And they recently wrote a paper um, that you can see in the bio of this episode. Um, I vowed to them that I would read it. And it sounds like I'll be able to digest it with my limited uh, knowledge on the topic, but everyone should read it if you're interested. Um, I learned a lot on this episode. And um, yeah, they were just a good hang. Um, I'm so happy to get full episodes out there in this new normal. Um, and hopefully I can get a bunch out there in the next few weeks. So enjoy. On the line with Kieran McGonigal and Jason Rasovsky from R3. Kieran, you're from ISDA. Thank you guys uh, for joining me today. Yeah. Just in case, Karen, you didn't know your company, I, uh, <laughs> I just reminded you. So um, you. before we get really into it, where are you guys dialing in from today? So I'm from New York uh, in Manhattan at the moment. I am too. We should have done this together, socially distanced. <laughs> Karen, where are you uh, so, dialing in from? Yeah, so I'm in a town called Colchester, which is about 60 miles or so. Uh, northeast of London. So we usually work in a oh. London office, but obviously been, been stuck out here for the last five months. How have you been doing uh, quarantining? Um, it's been okay. I mean, I guess like everybody's had their own particular challenges. I have two kids under five-year-olds, um, so a four-year-old and a three-year-old boy. So that's been um, interesting, shall we say, for the past five months. I, I have a newfound respect for teachers having had to homeschool yeah. um, for a couple of months. Yeah. But no, it's been okay. I mean, I think it's been a struggle for a lot of people, at least, you know, I haven't had a chance to get bored. So I suppose that's one thing. Yeah, that's true. Do you feel like things are getting a little bit better over there? Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of, of work, um, like the first month or so was was quite um, interesting because I suppose nobody's ever really faced anything like this before. So, yeah. uh, like, you know, we were getting, you know, a lot of questions from our members around a lot of very novel issues. So things like, you know, um, I'm working at home. I can't print out a document. Can I electronically sign something? You know, how do I send a notice to a company in London if the entire city's locked down? And yeah. it's like, uh, you know, nobody's ever had to think about this before. Um, so yeah, so the first few weeks were interesting, but it's, it's seems to have calmed down. I mean, professionally, it seems to have calmed down and it, it seems as though things are pretty much back to business as usual. That's good. Jason, how have you been? Have you been in Manhattan the whole time? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've taken as many trips out of town as possible. Uh, got a, got another one coming up, but yeah, I mean, generally it's been either home or central park, frankly. And I, probably have made Central Park my second home at this point. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Um, I just got back uh, to Manhattan after avoiding it for a few months. 
And it is kind of, it's, it's interesting. It's um, like when I, I was in a small town where if you're around your property or whatever, you weren't wearing a mask, but everyone's very, very good about wearing masks in public places. And here it's like, if you look like your mask isn't like a, like fully on, I feel like people look at you like, Hey, (laughs) like the New York fashion. Um, But things are opening up. So it's kind of, it's nice. I went to dinner last night for the first time in a while, which was nice feeling like, yeah, I I hope this is one of those changes that stays long-term. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And work outdoor dining. Yeah. Oh, but what's going to happen when we can't be outside and it's cold? I don't know. Anyway, I can't, I can't stress out about the future because I'm stressed enough about uh, the present. But okay, so let's get into it. First and foremost, can you, Kieran, tell us what is ISDA? Yeah, so ISDA um, is uh, short for, it's an acronym for, um, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. And we are a trade association. Um, that represent market participants in the derivatives industry. It's a very appropriate name. Um, We have around 900 or just over 900 members globally. Um, And that ranges from, as you might expect, the big investment banks, asset managers, pension funds, insurance companies, you know, all the way to corporates, supranationals, anybody essentially uses um, derivatives um, or, or participates in the derivatives market. Um, and among the things that we do, I mean, I suppose is this traditional role or probably what we're best known for is as a somewhat of a standard setting body. So traditionally, and I think is that was originally um, set up to develop and promulgate legal and documentation standards. So we're probably most famous for or most renowned for the the ISDA Master Agreement, which is the market standard documentation that effectively anybody who trades derivatives more than likely enters into. Um, So that was designed and intended to try and, I suppose, promote the growth of the market by allowing people to sign up to industry standard terms, mm-hmm. which then they could negotiate and customize based on their own commercial circumstances, et cetera. Um, and over time, yeah, we've, we've really built on that. So, you know, more documentation, legal opinions to support the legal enforceability of that documentation. Um, we have a you know, policy team. We do conferences um, to educate um, our members um, on developments. And, since 2009, uh, 2010, since sort of the, the fall away from the financial crisis and a lot of the regulatory reforms that we've seen in the market following the, the G20 global financial regulatory initiatives, our rule has has expanded, I think, quite considerably, it's fair to say. So that's obviously required a lot more documentation, a lot more contracts to address and cater for uh, regulatory changes in our industry. So mandatory clearing, reporting of transactions, collateral, things like that. Um, but also in other areas, so capital reform, um, technology is a big emerging issue for us as well, as, as we'll talk about. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's that's really is the, not quite in a nutshell, but, but a brief overview of our 30 year, over 30 year history. No, it's very helpful. So, um, Jason, how do we work with ISDA? Why, why are we here? Yeah, no. So, so, you know, I think a lot of kind of the mission of ISDA is really falls squarely within a complementary role to blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as, as, as Kieran mentioned, right, is this main goal has been around standardization, yeah. right? And, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the reason why blockchain, you know, has kind of taken grip in a lot of ways is because, 
you know, all of these independent institutions for so many years um, have built up their independent, you know, uh, technology stacks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so blockchain is meant to be kind of that bridge across uh, those technology stacks. And I think, you know, is the, what is it does really is, is do it in, 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 in a interesting kind of framework, right. For what they do. And so, you know, we've been working with them on thinking through these standards, right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure Kieran could kind of touch on this, you know, is this put out uh, smart contract uh, guidelines for developers, which, which we've contributed to. Um, We also kind of, one of the main focuses of of today should be around uh, the the, the paper uh, that uh, we put out with ISDA alongside uh, Clifford Chance in the Singapore Academy of Law, uh, which I think actually uh, answers some very novel questions about how you would enforce uh, derivatives transactions on a blockchain platform. Um, you know, and so and so I think you know, kind of, kind of that 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 framework and, and that that standardization is really goes hand in hand with what we do, and I think you know that's why we're so excited to, to really work with them. Yeah, totally. So we're going to talk about the paper, but uh, first, Karen, can you talk a little bit about those smart contracts, um, like what you you yeah. guys have done? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, having I joined as a actually three years ago, almost almost uh, to the week, um, and when I joined, I think we were just starting our um, thinking or to develop our thinking around how blockchain, DLT, how smart contracts might be used in our industry. And I think, you know, derivatives as an industry is quite well suited um, to the application of technology like blockchain and like like smart contracts. I mean, if you look at sort of the, the economic terms, for example, of a derivatives transaction, they're all fairly, you know, operational in nature. You know, you, you, you determine the, the payout of a derivative by reference to an external data source. You perform a calculation. You determine that X is due to Y on a particular date. It lends itself well to you know the representation of that kind of logic within within um, computer code. Um, similarly, I think you know as Jason mentioned, I think a lot of the issues that we have or that is the traditionally faced and tried to solve in terms of standardization and documentation are things that we are increasingly looking at in other areas as well. So thinking about technology and process, essentially how do people implement and reflect their derivatives transactions within their own technology infrastructure? You know, firms tend to have their own individual representations of trades. So, you know, I'll enter into a contract with you. We'll take the terms away. We'll implement them into our systems. We'll probably implement them very differently using different terminology, using potentially different code, different types of systems. When there's a break or a dispute or some kind of an issue and we look to attempt to reconcile our data, it's going to be you know, different. There's also a disconnect between the processes and the contract. So the, the implementation of the transaction is, as a result, ever, ever only really going to be an approximation of the contractual terms you've, you've signed up to. So if you put DLT into the equation, you think about how does DLT solve that? You know, if, if firms are working with a common representation of the data, you all agree on the sort of the golden source of the data and you use that as the base and as the foundation for developing other technology solutions, whether that's executable smart contracts, AI or whatever, you know, you're in a much better place. I think another aspect of sorry, Jason, go ahead. No, no, but you know, and, and I think it, it kind of makes sense to, to kind of drill down a little bit, right? So so you say smart contracts. Mm. Um and, and I know in, in a lot of your papers you also talk about smart legal contracts. 
Uh, do you want to kind of briefly touch on kind of what the distinction is and why that's important? For, Ooh, for yeah. thank you. Good question. Go. This is the good question. This is the, the number one question. Um, so, you know, as a, as a trade association, we don't take a view. You know, we're technology agnostic. You know, other platforms, other smart contracts are, are available. Um, but, you know, the view that we take when we talk about smart derivatives contracts, what we're really talking about is automation. So the automation either of the contract itself or some kind of process which derives from the contract. So, you know, to a technology developer, I guess a smart contract is a piece of executable code that sits on a blockchain platform, not necessarily a blockchain platform, but most likely. Whereas to a lawyer, the word contract obviously invokes, you know, different types of, uh, different types of things. So I suppose for us, when we think about smart contract, we're talking about the legal contract itself. So we're talking about smart legal contracts as, mm-hmm. as the, sort of the industry understands it. And we're talking about in the derivatives context, taking certain aspects of that contract and automating it. So it may be a payment obligation. So I will pay you, you know, X on a given date that could be automated and it could be automated in potentially two different ways. It could be automated through the development and implementation of executable code within a process. And, you know, the contract remains much the same as it does today, written in natural language form or a more advanced application of that potentially might be to take the contract itself, remove the, the natural language and actually have the contractual obligation written in code, uh, which is you know more advanced. And there are different schools of thought as to you know where we'll end up. But it's it's an interesting debate. And I think it's a debate, Jason, that we've been having or a discussion we've been having for certainly all the time I've known you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think, you know, at least from the R3 perspective, you know, the, the, the idea around smart contracts has always been kind of an integration, right? And, and I think that's, yeah. that's another point of, of, of where there's kind of a complementary, uh, uh, you know, kind of aspect of the relationship, you know, it, it, it's because of that fact, right? It's, it's, it's you know, when, when you build a platform from the ground up and you want to take in, you know, legal considerations, regulatory considerations, um, you want to make sure that, you know, what you're creating are going to be binding and enforceable contractual obligations. Yeah. Um, and as of today, you know, that would have to be, you know, at least uh, 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 an integration between, you know, the code and, and the natural language, uh, which really, frankly, was, was the basis for, for court in, in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about the paper because it's getting a lot of, a lot of buzz. Can you give some background? And then I'll obviously link to it in the bio of this episode for people who actually want to want to read it. Yeah. So I think the, the kind of the genesis of the paper, and we've done a few papers over the years kind of targeted at uh, some of those questions that we just discussed. So yeah. as a smart contract and enforceable contract, how do you develop a smart contract in practical terms? So yeah. this this took a slightly different tack, this paper. So I suppose there's, a, there's a, an inherent challenge with um, any kind of technology that seeks to decentralize or disintermediate um, existing, you know, trading relationships and trading infrastructures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I suppose, when you look at the more technically advanced or technologically advanced applications of, of DLT and in certain types of platform, there may be some doubt um, or some uncertainty as to where you know people are based. So if you have a completely decentralized permissionless blockchain system mm-hmm. where you have anonymous or pseudonymous um, participants on the platform, and where you have assets that are completely digitized and dematerialized kind of flowing among those parties and something goes wrong, you know, who do you sue? How do you sue them? And once I sue and win, how do I get my assets back? Where are they? Mm-hmm. So these are all, I think, really interesting. I mean, interesting. It's all relative. Interesting for lawyers, but interesting <laughs> questions. <all> <laughs> Nonetheless. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I think so. 
Um, so yeah, so the paper that we did, I mean, one of the things that we're really keen to do is always is to anchor all of this stuff in a very, in a very practical application. So, you know, we're not academics, we're not theorizing here, we're, we're, we're looking at practical things. So the paper looked at a couple of different scenarios, a couple of different hypothetical implications of a smart contract on Corda and looked at a couple of different aspects. So one was, you know, we're trading a derivative on Corda. We decide that we want the contract to be governed by English law. Jason's in New York. I'm in England. If there's a dispute, is there any issues there? Can we still, you know, is it still certain, legally certain that our dispute would be, you know, governed by English law? And I think, you know, the, the, it would be. I think it's the, no, no, not wanting to give you any spoilers if you haven't read the paper, but there you go. Um, the other issue, which I think is the more interesting and the more novel, is around the assets. So let's say Jason's in New York. I am in London. There's a dispute. I've posted him $100 of uh, tokenized assets. Mm -hmm. And I look to recover that $100 from him. Where are they based? And I think the answer to that question really depends on the platform itself. So something like Corda, I mean, Jason will go into this. There really aren't any problems just given the, the characteristics and the features of the platform. Something like, you know, Bitcoin, you know, where, you know, the, the, the assets are essentially strings of code located on a server in Siberia somewhere. I think that's quite challenging. You know, how do you, who do you go to to enforce yeah. Um, to, to get your money back, essentially. And I think that's that's the sort of the area that we identified as being something that is um, uncertain and probably requires some action at, a, at an international level. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, uh, kind, of, kind of going off that point, you know, the, the key word here is governance, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, how do you govern these transactions? How do you, you know, what, what rule set, you know, do you agree upon before you even enter into the transaction, right? And I think that's kind of, you know, one of the key, you know, focal points of, of what it is that, you know, I think the paper was trying to get into was, you know, if you agree on things before they happen, then you know how to resolve disputes as they arise, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that's kind of one of the benefits of the court system, frankly, in, in this scenario, um, you know, is that you have these agreements that you enter into to get onto the platform to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you you start creating these kind of contractual hierarchies, right? And so as as transactions happen, you can look to you know a you know a contract for the transaction, you know that if there's an issue with the code, right? Uh, you know, if there's a dispute that that's that's beyond that, you could look to the contract you got in, you know to enter into the platform. You know, if there are standards or something else that you're integrating, you could look to those. Um, and so I think you know the, the the purpose, you know, and a lot of where you know I you know this is exciting. I think is because you're 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 thinking about these rule sets and, and realizing that you could structure rule sets. And I think you know the work that ISTA did here was you know in, incredibly important because you know that's one of the first things that lawyers ask is how do you resolve a dispute and what law governs right um yeah. and 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 when you answer that as kind of the first step you know there's just so many things that kind of flow flow, flow from that yeah and um and one of the the interesting things that came out of this is we all i mean we think these of these issues as novel and they are i mean we're dealing with very new and innovative technology but in a legal sense i mean there isn't really there there's nothing new that is an old as, as my mother would say so we were at um 
on this issue of you know where are assets located and for legal reasons we were at a, an ISDA conference I think Jason and the last year perhaps the year before losing track of time um, and we were talking about you know there's no certainty here we've never addressed this issue before it's completely novel we're at the frontier here and somebody puts their hand up and they're like no actually we looked at this exact same issue 20 years ago when we were doing the I think it was the Cape Town convention on kind of property rights in space and we we're like well we thought about you know, where is a, a spacecraft that's located in geostationary orbit above the Earth? Where is that located for legal reasons? How do you take security over that? So there's always stuff you can learn from. So I suppose your space law is, is an inspiration that we can, we can perhaps draw upon for our work. <laughs> this is really cool. I will say for some, it's not just like a novel, interesting. I find this very interesting because it's also something, since you guys deal with this stuff every day, like I don't really think about this as much. So it is actually really cool to think about these things because obviously governance is a huge, it's a huge question in this like new world that we're, we're kind of jumping into. Um, Jason, you've talked to me before about how the Corda network governance is kind of similar. Can you talk about Corda network yeah. and how that all kind of relates? Sure. Uh, b- before we go there though, I think there's a second part of this paper, Ooh. which, which, which fun fact, um, uh, w- which I think is actually just as interesting, at least from my perspective. Um, right, let's see. And, and so, so the paper addressed two things, right? Um, okay. The first is obviously this, you know, choice of law. How do you, you know, address issues when they arise? Mm-hmm. And there's a second question posed, which is an issue has arisen. How do you now remediate? Okay. Um, and, and so in the paper, you know, we took kind of a, a real example, which was, you know, uh, a token was sent to the wrong party okay. uh, and there is now a court order out there uh, and a judge has said, you know, you have to remediate this, right? Uh, these tokens uh, that, were, that were with the wrong party have to be with the right party, okay? Yeah. So, okay. So, so the question is, you know, if this is meant to be immutable, um, you know, how do you solve for that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and what's interesting is we kind of, went through and, 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 and came up with, an, I think, a very interesting solution to this, um, frankly, because, you know, in, in Corda, you, you have, you know, um, distinctions between the notary and the node and, you know, who's validating and who's using and, and, and who's issuing uh, uh, assets. And so, you know, again, provided this is all in the governance, which I think is kind of the keyword here, uh, in the platform that you enter into, uh, the idea is that, you can serve the court order onto all the participants on the platform, right? So the notary now knows that it should no longer validate the tokens that were incorrectly sent, right? Mm-hmm. So that so essentially the person that has them can no longer forward them on. Okay. But now you also ensure that the issuer of the tokens sends them to the right party, right? Mm-hmm. And the notary now knows that those are in fact accurate, right? Okay. And so if they're incorrectly sent, and now you want to remediate that error. Um, you have a you have a means of doing that, right? So I think I think it, it you know the paper addresses both the before you enter into the platform, how do you resolve disputes, and then also if a dispute happens, how do you technologically implement that? Um, you know, and I think that that's 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 probably the 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 second uh, piece piece of that that that, that I felt was was, was interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the the second interesting thing with the PowerPoint diagrams that I put together. I thought they were. They, I mean, I mean, I thought that was a given. To be to be to be fair, yeah. They, they, it, 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 it's the it, it's the and 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 Kieran, 
uh, put together very uh, succinct and precise diagrams that that really r- r- really show what needs to happen. Perfect. Your your uh, tokens are in the post. <laughs> <laughs> well, so okay, so for a lay person like me who doesn't know all of this information yeah. because I have not yet read the paper, would I be able to understand and like? like the paper just from someone who's like not in this world? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I, like, I, I, I think, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, especially if you look at the diagrams, frankly, you know, oh, well, that's a good point. Of course you, you'll see it all, but no, no, it's, 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 I, I, I think, you know, especially when you kind of get to this, you know, you, I, I think there's some kind of level of understanding you need to get to, but you know, that's why, I would also say read all the other ISTA papers because they all lay the foundation for this kind of step by step by step. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's no there's no getting away from it. It's a it's a technical area of law. It is you know somewhat academic, despite our best intentions. There are over a hundred footnotes, um, for example. Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I said, like what well, a lot of the things that we we try and do, we try and make sure it is as practical as possible. So it is kind of does use. Real life examples. It does, you know, to the extent possible, try and you know, anchor all of this in reality. Um, so yeah, yeah. Why, why don't you read like it and it. let us know? I'll re- I will. I'll report back. <laughs> well, on this page, I was extremely lost, but other than that, um, yeah, it does sound very interesting, though. But like, even from someone who's not in that world, um, kind of thinking through these things, uh, yeah. It is interesting. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. It's like one of the challenges, I think, certainly that I faced having, have, having come to this a couple of years ago is bridging that gap between, because nobody comes to this as an expert in every different aspect. I mean, I don't, yeah. you know, for one, for, I try my best, but I don't understand the nuances of the technology as well as I'd like to. So a lot of it is trying to bridge that gap across, you know, lots of different um, disciplines, which is, it's interesting, but it leads to, you know, all sorts of, you know, confusions and things you know the confusions over what words mean like the classic example in our world is the word execute so for a lawyer execute means you know sign a contract yeah to a technology developer it means execute a piece of code and you know to something yeah. else it means something else um a little bit but but but, but, but you know I, I think you I, I think you hit on a good point before which is there are so many analogies to be made right yeah you know, uh you know space property aside for a second um you know there there are issues that you know financial technology platforms have been, you know, thinking about and dealing with for, for some time, right? Uh, tokens can be analogized to, you know, whatever it is that they're meant to represent um, and how they're represented today, frankly, right? Yeah. Um, so so, so I, I, th- I think there are, you know, a lot of analogies that, that, that can be made, um, you know, and I think that's kind of, that's the way forward, right? Yeah. Um, is, is you help people understand what the terms that they get today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Speaking of analogies, back to my question about quarter network. <laughs> <laughs> what a segue! Uh, fantastic. Uh, so, so um, yeah. So, so you know, with the quarter network, um, you know, one of the main goals, and so for you know, kind of general conversation purposes, the quarter network is um, a network for um, court apps to be interoperable. Uh, and it's administered by an independent foundation that R3 helped found uh, that's based out of uh, the Netherlands. Um, and so, you know, the idea there is to allow kind of the users and the members of the Corda network to also, you know, help govern the Corda network. Uh, so there's an analogy between kind of the shared governance that, yeah. you know, we're, we're looking to kind of develop 
on the Corda network, uh, especially for the interoperability between applications, right? You know, for the movement of, you know, the dollar from the trade finance court app to the insurance court app. Um, yeah. You know, at that at that space, you want to have again, you know, going back to the keyword, right? The governance that that allows you to to know what happens. You know, if something goes wrong. You know, what what are the rules you abide by? Um, and frankly, what are the rules if everything goes right, right? Yeah. Um, which which is the ideal goal. Uh, and so I think you know, the analogy there is is frankly the frameworks, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of what we're trying to do. Um, and a lot of what the core network and the foundation and all the entities that are involved there are trying to do is create, you know, this framework for transaction of assets uh, in a similar way that is that has their framework, okay. um, you know. And so, you know, I think as everything kind of progresses and 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 development and thinking and all that, you know, there, there there's a neat little kind of fit there um, between, you know, the software governance stacks and obviously, you know, the, uh, the contractual frameworks that is together. Yeah. And, you know, the, the point about interoperability is, is a really important one. Um, you know, earlier this week, ISDA partnered with a number of other trade associations in different markets. And we, we published or we sent a letter to um, the Financial Stability Board, EOSCO and the Bank for International Settlements, essentially setting out kind of our view of the future of, um, of financial markets, very grand sort of ambitions, um, a digital future for financial markets. And I, I think, I mean, the, the, the interoperability, I think, is, is the thing underpinning everything that we set out in that letter. So we talk about, you know, the importance of um, standards as a foundation for building new technology and implementing it within the markets, the importance of standardization of documents, as we talked about earlier, but also the processes, the digitization of those processes. And I think importantly for us as trade associations, and all of the trade associations that co-signed the letter, is, you know, the importance of ensuring that those standards are interoperable, that they're property governance and that they're made available to the markets, you know, as, as freely as possible. Because, you know, like Jason said, I think, you know, what you don't want as a financial institution is to have, you know, different documents for different business lines and different processes for business lines if those differences aren't justified. You don't want to have to implement different platforms in each of those businesses. And, you know, particularly as a vendor, you don't want to be going down the street and doing something different and bespoke for every single bank because, you know, ultimately, take a step back, what are we trying to solve for? We're trying to solve for the inefficiencies and cost um, stress that are, 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 you know, that, that, that our members and financial institutions are, are experiencing. If we just end up kind of creating a new, swishier technology infrastructure that is not interoperable, that is still complex, that still, you know, that falls over if there's, a, you know, a big issue, a big market event, then we haven't really solved the problem. So I think that's, that's yeah. a really important point. Yeah. Um, Kieran, what is the uh, ISDA CDM or common domain model? Yeah. So the common domain model um, is, um, I mean, we talked already about standardization, and this is another kind of extension of that. So mm-hmm. what CDM is intended to do is to standardize the representation of derivatives trade processes. So anything that can happen in a derivatives transaction through the life cycle of the trade. So mm-hmm. payments, innovations, terminations, all that kind of thing. And it goes back to the point that we were just talking about around interoperability and the fact that you know different firms on the street will have different representations of different aspects of a trade within their system. So the CDM is an attempt to completely kind of harmonize that. Mm-hmm. So it sets out yeah, a schema or terminology or way of phrasing um, within the model 
different life cycle events um, on a trade by trade basis, albeit it's it's trade agnostic. You know, it, it, yeah. to the extent that there's an event within one asset class that can be referred to in the same way in another, that's the approach that we've taken. And you know, it's a model that's extensible. So you know, we, we're we're we've covered a number of different derivatives products. We're covering you know collateral. Um, we've recently, or we announced this week, with um, ISTA, the International Securities Lending um, Association, that. Um, we're going to be expanding it, or they're going to be working to expand it to cover securities financing transactions as well. So, it's again, it's this idea of creating this kind of foundation of standards, digitizing those standards, and then using that to allow people to implement solutions on top of it. Um, so, yeah, very interesting, very exciting for us. Um, I mean, in terms of things that we've done with it. Um, we've been speaking to the Bank of England and the FCA on a digital reporting pilot using it. So you can imagine that for regulator reporting in particular, the regulators expect to receive um, common expressions of data from all of the different market participants. So CDM really helps you know, towards doing that, ensuring consistency of data output. Um, and then there's other, you know, lots of really interesting applications as well across just trade lifecycle management, but also possibly in the collateral space too, which you know, in terms of things that you think about within our market of being good candidates for blockchain, for smart contracts, for automation, collateral management is, I think, you know, a really good one. It's very operational. It's very, you know, manually intensive. Um, it has a lot of operational processes baked in there. So, um, yeah, so it's, 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 you know, we've been developing it for the past couple of years. We're rolling it out. It's open source. So people can go onto the, the website, take a look, play around with it if you want. And, you know, for anybody listening who's interested in developing tech solutions based on CDM, you know, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to, you know, to talk about um, how you guys can get involved. Cool. Very cool. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so speaking of acronyms, we uh, right now, <laughs> CBDCs are like a hot topic. Um, and I just feel like everyone is kind of trying to learn more if they don't know much about CBDC. Um, we recently had a webinar at R3. It was like our most attended webinar um, all on CBDC uh, called CBDC, the race to reality. Um, and that's on the website. I can link to it. And that's gotten a lot of buzz. Does that, is that at all in your guys's world? Yeah. So, I mean, within, within Insta, I mean, we, we do look at, um, you know, digital assets. I think in the smart contracts guidelines papers that, that we talked about at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, as part of those papers, what we're trying to do in some instances and across specific products is trying to identify use cases. Yeah. And going back to collateral management, I think, you know, you could, um, I suppose, streamline and standardize a lot of the, the processes that make up a standard collateral management system or, or technology infrastructure. Um, by you know standardizing it, digitizing using blockchain as, as a books and records type of management system. Mm-hmm. I think we get probably longer term benefits out of that is by tokenizing the collateral assets themselves and having them being transferred directly on chain. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think you know a lot of the issues that we talked about as well around you know the legal issues around tokenization um, perhaps present an impediment to that. So you know the CBDC stuff is really interesting. I think it's it's um, you know, of I think a lot of relevance to our members and to the market. We'll see. We'll see where where it comes out. But you know, mm-hmm. if you can get to a place where I'm posting Jason a hundred dollars of collateral today, cash or securities, if I have a tokenized dollar that I can you know, press a button and have it transferred directly on chain, you know, I think that that has a, you know, quite a lot of interesting efficiency benefits associated with it. Yeah, and, and and you know, and I think you know that's kind of where again, kind of the paper that we that we wrote, you know, also adds value, right? Um, you know the 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 types of transactions that we talk about in the paper 
uh, and the type of settlement that could take place, you know, whether it can or can't be, well, it, it can potentially be a CBDC, right? And so, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the kind of the, the legal questions and the open questions that are being, you know, asked and answered in that paper, you know, I think it's kind of a, a rising tide slips all boats uh, uh, scenario because, you know, if this, you know, as this kind of moves forward, um, you know, those are a lot of those are the questions that you really need to ask for, you know, CBDC transactions as well. Um, you know, and I think, you know, shameless plug on, on the R3 side, you know, we, we, we are, as you know, Catherine, you know, doing the CBDC working group, um, you know, that's coming out in, in, in you know, I, I don't know the exact dates, but I think uh, towards yeah. the end of this month, uh, beginning of the next month. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, as that moves forward and we have this working group with all these kind of various different participants, um, you know, central banks and tech vendors and, you know, law firms and other industry bodies, as well, um, you know. Again, you know, it's it's. You know, I could imagine a world where where this paper, uh, you know, that we had with ISDA gets cited for, you know, um, explanations and understanding on how you would you would actually structure these uh, on platforms to begin with. So I think you know, uh, if if I'm not, if I wasn't excited before, it, it makes me more excited about the kind of you know the, the paper that we wrote together. Cool. Now I really have to read this thing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it's very interesting. I like learning about all of these different, everyone, I feel like it's a buzz, like it's buzzy right now. Everyone's talking about CBDC. Um, but anyways, thank you guys so much for joining me. I honestly learned a lot today talking to you guys. I'm very interested to learn more and I will read the paper and I'll let you guys know if I have any issues. <laughs> we can just do another podcast where you just explain to me what, what you wrote. That'd be fun. But anyways, thank you so much for joining me, guys. And I hope you stay healthy and safe and happy and all that. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for inviting us on. No crabs. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life in the Fast Chain. As always, share it with your friends and family. Um, you can always give me feedback at Bread and Rudder um, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, there will be a lot of new episodes to come. Um, I know I took a, a brief little hiatus, uh, but we back, baby. Uh, thanks for listening. And yeah, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't, if you're listening to this um, on your phone. And if you're watching, then you will see, uh, my setup in my apartment trying to get back to normal. Um, all right. Thanks. Bye.